I'd like to get into the biblical text right away, but I guess beforehand it's uh, a good idea to explain what we think the scriptures support in our in our view. Yeah, it's got nothing to do with uh, punk rock, unfortunately. As as briefly as I can, I'll try to present the main ideas. I won't really argue for it because I think the argument ought to come in the form of uh, how particularly, say, Romans 13 is compatible with this. But in any case, it's also not about the Libertarian Party, and it's not about any particular uh, political candidate. So if you can separate in one's mind uh, any associations with the Libertarian Party, that's probably for the best. It's a political philosophy or a view of civil governance that's based on a particular view of what persons are, what property is, inherent rights, and specifically the legitimate use of coercion. And that, namely, is that the initiation or first use of coercion, sometimes we restrict the word aggression for the first use or initiation of coercion, that that, the first use of coercion against others or their property, for example, you know, murder, assault, theft, fraud, credible threatening of these things, none of these things are ever legitimate. So the initiation of coercion is never legitimate, and the only legitimate use of coercion is in proper response or a proportional response to prior initiation of coercion. So it, it, it's only legitimately used responsively. And that principle or norm, we believe, is a universal God-given norm, and of course it's seen in the Sixth and Eighth Commandments, uh, do not murder, do not steal. Interestingly, Proverbs 3.30 also has some implications for this, says something to the effect of uh, don't contend with your neighbor if he hasn't harmed you and that sort of has legal nuance that means don't bring the law or force or coercion against someone who hasn't done so to you but in any case we also and it's important to distinguish between vice or things that are imprudent or sinful and what is crime so the realm of ethics and morality, which centers in loving your neighbor. This is distinct from what justice or civil justice is, which has to do with what is due to others. So in civil matters, failing to give due what is someone's due, this may be always unloving, but not necessarily vice versa. For example, you know, if you lie, this is sinful, this is a violation of the norm of love, of ethics, of morality, but it's not necessarily a criminal offense. So we have to distinguish between those two things that helps us understand this uh, principle. Another thing that we need to distinguish is between what we own and owe with respect to God, distinguish that from what we own and we owe with respect to other people. So you can think of it in terms of, if you say the uh, vertical and the horizontal, this principle has to do with the horizontal towards what we own and owe with respect to other people because, of course, God owns everything. We owe everything to God. And with regard to our neighbor, what we own and owe doesn't work that way. It's not the same. Uh, my neighbor can steal from me. God cannot steal from me. So uh, those things have to be distinguished. The last most important distinction that gets to the heart of what stateless civil governance is about is distinguishing the state 
what is the state in this particular form of political legal order, you could say? How is that distinct from civil governance as such? So the state is a particular form of it. And generally, we understand that civil governance is basically the adjudication of civil disputes involving persons or their property, and this has to do with rights. Rights are enforceable or enforceable uh, normative claims regarding your person or property, and so civil governance has to do centrally with the adjudication of disputes over those things with the rules and the enforcement that accompanies that adjudication, whereas a state is a territorial monopoly on coercion, and that monopoly requires the initiation of coercion against people and their property. The state, because it has a monopoly on coercion, is in principle and always increasingly tending in practice totalitarian. You know, that's the thing when I was a uh, constitutionalist and I thought, well, governments have to be chained by the Constitution, limited by the Constitution. That got me thinking about the monopoly power of the state. I realized that even with uh, the inherent right to defend my uh, own other rights, that the monopoly actually means in principle the state is totalitarian, and it tends in that direction always. It, it's not limited if it's a monopoly, even by a piece of paper or your gun. Just in principle, it's not limited. So as a monopoly we recognize that states are inherently in their foundation unjust because they require the initiation of coercion against people and their property. They're not legitimate, necessary, they're not inevitable, they're not prudent and practical. However, civil governance, that is the adjudication of disputes in a non-monopolistic fashion, that is stateless civil governance, this is legitimate and it's necessary for civil justice. Historically, it's been practiced in various partial ways throughout history. It fits with uh, social and economic realities. It's uh, plausible. It's a realistic alternative to the state. And it really takes limited government to its consistent conclusion. The proper role of government as a uh, impartial judge of third-party judge of disputes, if you have three people, for example, and one of the principles would be you can't be a judge in your own case, persons A, B, and C. If persons A and B have a dispute, they can go to C. But if persons C and A have a dis dispute, that doesn't mean C gets to decide. They should go to B. And so it's that uh, understanding of limited government, of separation of power, so to speak, taken to its logical conclusion that produces a non-monopolistic stateless understanding of civil governance. So Carey has written a series of excellent articles, four articles at the Libertarian Christian Institute, uh, their website, Libertarian Christians, and we will uh, link to those. Uh, there's another essay by a philosopher named uh, Gerard Casey that I found very helpful, and I've also put together a playlist. So we've collected some resources regarding this basic position that we want to make available at uh, mereliberty.com uh, slash Romans 13. I'll have my notes listed there. What I want to do is to present a historic reformed understanding of that passage and how I think that supports a proper view of the state 
namely a rejection of the state, but yet a affirmation of legitimate civil governance. I wanted to say that uh, using the term anarchism is a little bit like using the term Calvinist. When people ask me if I'm religious, I'd like to tell them that I'm a Calvinist because they don't know what it means. It's a conversation starter. So the basic interpretation of Romans 13 that we follow has been advocated by covenanters. Uh, that is the stream of uh, Scottish Presbyterians who followed the Solemn League and Covenant. Uh, other establishmentarians also in the Reformed faith, both Continental and uh, British Isles, followed this interpretation. Charles Hodge reflects, he, he didn't follow through with this viewpoint consistently, but there are two quotes from him I want to uh, mention before getting into the passage in his commentary on Romans that basically reflect this viewpoint. The first thing he said was, Paul, in this passage, Romans 13, is speaking of the legitimate design of government, not the abuse of power by wicked men. So in other words, Paul is not telling us that we need to submit to tyrants or to any unjust laws. He's not talking about de facto rulers, those that are in fact claiming power presently. He's not talking about God's providential ordination or institution of government, but of the prescriptive or legitimate design of governance. The second quotation from Hodge is, No command to do anything morally wrong can be binding. Right? No command to do anything morally wrong can be binding, nor can any which transcends the rightful authority of the power whence it emanates. Basically, in other words, he's saying, it's not only the command to sin that we don't have to obey when it's issued by any would-be authority, but we don't have to obey anything coming from civil authorities or would-be authorities beyond the requirements to act justly and submit to justice because that's the limit on their authority. So if a mugger in the street tells me to hand over my wallet, I might do that, but not because I have to obey him or that I owe that to him. And it's the same with any government, and it's particularly the state. I shouldn't rob or murder people, but when the state tells me I can't cut hair without a license or don't collect rainwater on your own property, they don't actually have that authority. And so I'm free to ignore or disobey them. And so Hodge is recognizing this principle, that it's not just commands to sin that we don't have to obey or shouldn't obey, but that there's a limit on the authority given. So Hodge is representing this historic reformed and actually goes back before the Reformation in parts, what might be called the political resistance view of Romans 13. And this is also reflected in the Westminster Confession and the London Baptist Confession, where it talks about things lawful in the Westminster Confession in chapter 20, section 4 on Christian liberty. It says this, because the powers which God has ordained and the liberty which Christ has purchased are not intended by God to destroy, but mutually to uphold and preserve one another, they who oppose any lawful power or the lawful exercise of it resist the ordinance of God. So this term about authority being limited to what is lawful is the main idea that's reflected in all the Reformed confessions, in the Belgic Confession, in the Second uh, Helvetic Confession, uh, has similar language. 
I first encountered this view in a book called A Christian Manifesto, written by Francis Schaeffer in uh, the early 80s, 1981, I think. It's more clearly represented in some works that he draws on, namely Samuel Rutherford's work Lex Rex, which is Latin for law king, either rendered as the law is king or sometimes the law and the prince, something like that. That was uh, 1644. There's a, another work by a fellow named James M. Wilson, simply called Civil Government. That was written in 1853, and we'll link those works so people can access them. Uh, those really represent this viewpoint on Romans 13, and it's namely this. So if we look at that passage that you just read, whatever terms the translation use, the powers that be or the existing or governing authorities in verse 1 to which we must submit. This doesn't mean the de facto powers who claim authority. Rather, the meaning here is only those who God authorizes, that is, ordains or institutes, whatever word is being used, only those who God ordains are actual legitimate authorities. That's the meaning. So ordain can sometimes in the scripture mean God's providence, whatever falls out uh, in history, whatever actually occurs by God's determination. But it's also, that same word is also used for his moral authorization, right, his prescription. So how do we decide how it's being used here? The context shows us that it's about God's authorization because the passage goes on to say in verses 3 and 4 it specifies that God only authorizes or ordains the use of the sword to administer actual civil justice so in one translation it says not a terror to good conduct but to bad approving of the good God's servant or minister for your good a sword-bearing avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer, right? So if we want to say, oh, God ordains something, what is he ordaining? He's ordaining the punishment of violations of justice, the commendation of justice. God is ordaining the administration of civil justice. So to sort of head off perhaps a possible further question or objection when the passage in verse verses uh, 6 and 7 says, for this reason you must also pay tribute or taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing, that is the administration of justice. Render therefore to all their dues taxes to whom taxes are due and so on. You'll notice that this passage and no scripture actually ever says that anyone in fact owes a tax Rather, it says, if you owe, then pay what you owe. If we choose to use a toll road, then we would owe the toll. So here's how this basic interpretation put forward by Samuel Rutherford and, and other outstanding reformers, here's the context of Romans in which this perspective really comes to light and makes sense. The previous exhortations in this epistle to not conform to the world to discern and hold fast to what is good, to abhor evil, to avoid vengeance, to live at peace. You could readily conclude, you can imagine someone might think, oh, the government is contrary to these things. It's contrary to God's revealed moral will because 
they're not about this. That's the world. They're doing what's evil. They're being vengeful. They're not uh, supporting peace, et cetera, et cetera. So we should resist government. But while taking it as granted, of course, Paul lived in the real world, that some in positions of power and some forms of power are obviously evil and illegitimate. You know, Hosea 8.4 says, they made kings, but not through me, right? So that's against the providential mistaken view that somehow Romans 13 is referring to whoever happens to actually be in power. Right in that passage, God is saying, no, here's a king, and it wasn't according to my prescriptive will. Uh, Mark 10.42, Jesus refers to those who are considered to be rulers of the Gentiles. And that word is significant because it means supposed to be, but not actually, authorities. Paul here sets out to clarify that despite the evil of the empire and the state, God has nevertheless established a legitimate role for civil governance. And that our submission to the sort of government that God prescribes or ordains is also in accordance with his moral will. There are other passages, I think, that help clarify this understanding of Romans 13. For example, 1 Corinthians 6, we see that Paul can't have been referring to the Roman Empire in Romans 13 when he says uh, to the church in Corinth. He says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to trial trivial cases? Do you not know that you are going to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So the, the Roman Empire, the Roman so-called rulers here are called unrighteous, that is unjust. And therefore, they're not legitimate authorities to which believers can submit their civil disputes. If the Roman so-called rulers were ministers of God for their good, administering justice, then Paul couldn't have forbidden Christians from seeking adjudication from them. And further on in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, he says, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And so, among other things, this is to say that many so-called lords or rulers have no more genuine civil authority from God than so-called gods have genuine deity or divinity. What I was just saying is basically that those who by God's sovereign control of history may be in positions of power are not necessarily those who have God's moral authorization or ordination according to scripture. God's word doesn't require our submission to unjust so-called rulers. The sword-bearing power that is ordained of God, according to Romans 13, is the administration of civil justice, punishing criminals and defending victims of crime. Now, we recognize that the state, as a monopoly involving initiation of coercion, is inherently unjust and is therefore not authorized or ordained by God. 